Well, good morning, Christ. Hold fast, gang. Uh, good to be with you here this morning. Uh, you might notice that my surroundings are a little different than usual, and the reason that is is because today, you probably can't see it because it's too bright outside my window. Maybe if I turn the light off here, you'll see. Um, now that doesn't really help either. Uh, there's some white stuff falling from the sky today, known as snow, and that means that, uh, once again, my kids have a delayed opening which means that I have a delayed start to our devotion today because I am busy taking care of kids and working out schedules to try and get them to school, etc., etc. You don't want to hear about any of that, but I'm just giving you the, the excuse for why I'm starting a bit late today. Anyhow, let's go ahead and get into the text on this snow day here in the Northeast. Uh, we have been camped out in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 12, uh, the last few weeks discussing what it means to be born again. And yesterday, or, or I should say last week, we saw that born agains uh, display char certain characteristics. God works in us hope and joy, even in the midst of real trials and difficulties in our life. Uh, and Peter really isn't done speaking about the virtues that God's Spirit works in us as his new creations. And so there's a couple more I thought we should go over today, uh, and then we'll wrap it up with sort of the results of uh, our being renewed or being made into new creations. So then uh, verse 8 tells us another thing that God works in us is love for him. As a result of our being born again, we grow to love God. The way Peter puts it in verse 8 is it says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Well, yes, we do. Um, we do. I mean, there's a we do, right? We do love God. I hope we love God. But there's a sense in which we also don't love him at least the way we know we ought to, right? Because to truly love it with everything, with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our strength and all of our mind is something that we really haven't ever done perfectly. I mean, love is, is more than a feeling, obviously, to quote Boston. Um, it's, it can be easy to say that we love God, but in fact might actually not be evidenced very often in our actions, right? In love to some extent, has to be evidenced in our actions. It means being faithful to him and obeying him and suffering for him, if need be, following his commandments and loving our neighbors sacrificially. To love God means loving his word and loving who he reveals himself to be in his word. As, as Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And so my response is, I don't love you nearly, nearly in the way that I should. And so, you know, I... I, I think even as God works this in us as his new creations, love for him. We're also forced to acknowledge that there's a coldness and um, a lack of intimacy sometimes in our love. Uh, there's a short poem from the book The Valley of Vision, which is um, a book of prayers that the Puritans wrote down I'm not necessarily the biggest fan of the Puritans, I think, um, but I do think some of their stuff is good, and the Valley of Vision has some some really interesting poems, and, and one of them is about the love of God, or loving God, and it reads like this. 
The love of Jesus, O Father of Jesus, help me to approach thee with deepest reverence, not with presumption, not with servile fear, but with holy boldness. Thou art beyond the grasp of my understanding, but not beyond that of my love. Thou knowest that I love thee supremely, for thou art supremely adorable, good, perfect. My heart melts at the love of Jesus, my brother, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, married to me, dead for me, risen for me. He is mine and I am his, given to me as well as for me. I am never so much mine as when I am his. I love that line. Or so much lost to myself until lost in him. Then I find my true manhood. Now that sounds so wonderful. That first part is just, I love thee supremely. And even as the author says this, he also goes on to say this, but my love is frost and cold, ice and snow. Let his love warm me, lighten my burden, be my heaven. May it be more revealed to me in all its influences that my love to him may be more fervent and glowing. Let the mighty tide of his everlasting love cover the rocks of my sin and care. Then let my spirit float above those things which had else wrecked my life. Make me fruitful, fruitful by living to that love, my character becoming more beautiful every day. So there is a sense, and I could go on, the, the poem goes on, but I, I won't um, uh, belabor the point. There is a sense in which even at our most um, loving times towards God, there's a recognition that we're not where we should be. Nonetheless, that is, God produces that in us. God produce, I mean, as First John tells us in the famous verse, we love God because he first loved us. And and so there's a sense as we marinate more on how much God loves us and how much God has done for us in the person and work of Jesus Christ, we grow in our love for the Lord. We don't grow in our love, uh, incidentally, by beating ourselves up and telling ourselves, come on, love more, love more. You have to love more. Love doesn't work like that in any sphere of life. Love is something that uh, happens from within and it is worked from within and uh, that is what God does as he reminds us of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's produced in us as we are renewed and focus more on what Jesus has done. Secondly, of course, it's kind of bears, it doesn't even almost need repeating, but, but born-again Christians believe in the Lord. God produces faith in us, in other words. Um, Peter says it this way in verses 8 and 9, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now, just a note about faith and what it means here. Uh, during the days of the Reformation, the Reformers basically came up with a couple ways of distinguishing that word faith. Um, the one way that you could kind of understand faith was to simply assent to the facts that are behind the faith. It would be known as intellectual assent. And essentially what that meant was there is a certain kind of faith that can accept all the details of Christianity and yet still not be saving faith. This is true. Uh, what they meant, for example, I mean, there's been many times that I have... Um, I've had conversations with people and have convinced them of the various arguments 
that the most reasonable thing to believe in is that Jesus Christ actually lived, that he actually died, and that he rose again from the dead, that he's alive today. I've actually had uh, discussions where people have been convinced of the rationality of that through apologetic uh, arguments and, and discussion. And yet I can tell you that although they eventually assented to what I had to say, they did not trust in Jesus Christ. And so there is a sort of person that submits to the facts in the case, but they don't place themselves into the care of Jesus. And so the reformers looked at the scriptures and said, that sort of faith is not the kind of saving faith that the Bible talks about. Rather, saving faith is trusting faith. This is the faith that says, I believe Jesus lived the perfect life. Here's the key words, for me. Died the perfect death for me, rose from the dead for me. I put my trust in him for my life and salvation. And so, so one sort of faith, the first one, the intellectual ascent, is saying, okay, yeah, I think it's reasonable that these things you say about Jesus happened, but it, there, there's no sense of seeing it being done for them, needing it to be done for them. And that's what trusting faith is. I'm reminded, as I talk about this, uh, Martin Luther's Christmas sermon uh, of 1531. It's based on Isaiah 9, chapter, uh, or chapter 9, verse 6, where it says, for, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. And you will never hear Luther get more excited in his preaching or his writing than when he starts talking about those two words, for us or to us. He says this, quote, for whom, had, for whom was he conceived and born? For whom did he suffer and die? For us, for us, for us. Always at us, Luther says. That is why the fathers rightly put the word in the creed and in for whom who was he conceived and born. For whom did he suffer and die? For us, for us, for us. That is why they put in the creed, Jesus Christ is not just the Lord, he is our Lord. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. For Luther and the Reformers, that possessive pronoun is everything. Jesus is ours. He is our righteousness. He is our life. He is my death. He is my resurrection. That is everything. And so Luther goes on to say in his commentary on Isaiah 9, it is not enough to say that he is born to us, but we must say he is also given to us. What does given mean? He is a pure gift, a present. There is nothing I have to give or pay in return. Amen, amen. So, now that we've talked about those two things, that being born again uh, by the Spirit sort of produces in us love for God um, and faith in God, trusting that Jesus did what he did for me, uh, what is the main purpose of being born again? Well, that Peter covers in verse 9 too. He says, um, for the salvation of our souls. The very end there. Now, we're not saying anything new here. This is what, Peter, this is what Jesus said he came to do. Uh, John 3 is a wonderful passage where Jesus talks about uh, how a person can be born again and why they need to be born again. And he essentially says that in the waters of baptism, uh, 
that that we we become completely renewed and resurrected. And so I'm not going to spend too much time going over that aspect. I think we already know that it produces the salvation of our souls, this being born again. Um, but also, finally, it's done for this purpose. It's done so that they're so that ultimately praise and glory go to the name of Jesus Christ. It's true. I mean, if you, if you look all throughout the passage, you're going to see that Peter sort of anchors the reasons why God does everything for us is because it's going to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Look at the end of verse 7 to find that. Listen to a couple other scriptural examples of this sort of thing being said. Ephesians 1, verses 11 through 14. In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Why were we predestined to salvation, Paul? To the praise of his glory, Eric. Moving on, verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, we're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Once again, to the praise of his glory. Why were we sealed with the Holy Spirit, Paul? Because it's to the praise of his glory, Eric. And so ultimately, the outcome of this all, of God renewing sinners, making them into new creations, making them into people that now are covered in the righteousness of Jesus Christ solely by faith alone, is so that the same people that at one time had cursed God will now look at God and fall to their knees in utter awe and praise that he would save a sinner like me. That's the story. That's the whole story. The book of Revelation ends with a bunch of people that are totally not worthy to stand before the throne of God, bowing down on their knees with their faces on the ground, saying, you are worthy, God, because you figured out a way to save a scoundrel like me. You figured out a way to make a place at your wedding feast for a scoundrel like me, and all I have to say in response is thank you, Thank you, thank you. So that's ultimately what God is doing in our lives. He is bringing us to the point where we, we become, uh, it becomes more natural for us to just simply live life saying, thank you, thank you. All right, with that, uh, I hope you're encouraged. I hope that you are anchored in what it means to be a new creation today. And uh, we'll move on to the next passage in First Peter next week. Until then, God bless.